0: What do you think kate any 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 sign it's working? Yeah, it did it. you live How did you figure it out? Uh, you know it's amazing what happens if you actually spend an insane amount of time playing with the zoom settings
1: you, I, said, you said something the other day about how you were going to like one day at a time you were going to um, figure out these this problem and I'm very I think that that's actually proven to be true one day like there's like there was one hurdle at a time we have like you have figured out every single problem that we've had
0: well you know it's one thing about planning a show while doing it you make all <laughs> kinds of screw-ups but we are live and uh you know we don't have fun anymore in this coronavirus-infected world, but we, in lieu of fun, you've got us. And uh, today, um, we've got my uncle John Turk on the phone from uh, uh, from the Bitterroot in Valley in in, uh, in Western Montana. John is—I um, don't quite know how to describe you, John. You're a chemist. You're a textbook writer. You're a uh explorer of extreme places um and i'm an old man you're an old man you're getting old there um (laughs) um how old are you now
2: 74
0: 74 and you're a backwoods skier and a and a ocean kayaker of an of a particular variety how do you describe yourself
2: yeah, that's all good. You you've done a good job. Um Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that, that, that's a hard thing, you know, without tooting your own horn, but um that's all good.
0: So, <laughs> we decided we wanted to have you on because we were thinking about uh having somebody on from each of 50 states to talk about um you know, how the coronavirus uh, pandemic is looks from their particular state, and then when I'm, when I said I have an uncle in Montana, Kate was like, "Well, I go out to Montana all the time to do garlic farming," and we started talking about Montana and you and stuff. So we decided to have you on the show. So
2: well, it's great to be here. Thanks. I'm honored to be on the show. Wonderful.
0: So so let's start us out by just telling us is uh, is coronavirus a urban thing that in rural Montana no one's uh, experiencing, thinking about, talking about? Is it something that is uh, actually a problem for rural healthcare in Montana? Is it, uh, like, how is it playing out there?
2: Well, it's a density thing. So we don't ride the subways. We don't, you know, in a normal, in normal life, non-coronavirus life, we don't ride the subways. We don't get on crowded buses. Should we, social distancing is sort of normal, in, in much of the situation. Last I look, we were around 200 cases for the state, and I forget how many deaths, four or five. Um so we're advantaged by the fact that we we normally have social distancing. My wife and I nine and I live out here in the woods and um you know you can get out in the morning and if you feel like taking a leak in the front lawn uh, nobody's going to see you so that's natural social distancing. Um, at the same time, the governor has asked us to have uh, no unnecessary travel and a lot of the the normal uh, restrictions that happen elsewhere. It's just that if you look out the window and you don't see any cars driving up and down the street, that's not normal. If I look out the window and I don't see any cars driving up and down the street, that is normal.
0: <laughs> right.
1: It's funny. It's funny, John, Um, I teach property and uh, the way that um, the way that I describe the difference between urban, uh, suburban and rural property norms is that if it's uh, in a in a rural area, if you take if you pee on your front yard, no one, no one notices, no one sees no one's there to notice or see you in a suburban area, the neighbors will call the cops. And in an urban area, they'll be out there, like they'll like hand you a beer as you like as you walk by. I think that that's kind of, I I think that you just encapsulated that very nicely.
2: Cool. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we still have snow in the front yard. We still have two feet of snow in the front yard here. Uh, we came down from Canada. We've been skiing and. Um, I mean, I hate to say this because I understand the tragedy that's going on around us, but out here in the woods, when you talk about Montana, there's cities and countries out here in the woods, our life is not that much changed, I hate to say it.
0: So this is a little bit of a tangent, but I, I, I think for a lot of people listening, both on, on the call and on YouTube, they may have a different connotation with the word, we just came back from skiing, than you mean when you say it. Um, When you say you just came back from skiing, you mean something a little different from, you know, going to a ski area and, um, you know, staying in a lodge or a cabin or whatever. Um, What is, when you say skiing, what do you mean by that? (laughs)
2: Well, we go up to a ski area, a resort town, and stay for four months. And in that period of four months, you wake up in the morning every single day, and your default activity is to go skiing. If the skiing is not good, then you can go to plan B or C or D, but plan A is always to go skiing. And skiing is backcountry skiing. I'm a, a backcountry mountain skier, so that means climbing mountains in avalanche terrain every single day, evaluating the avalanche conditions, and then dropping into something that you think won't kill you that day. Um, and
1: do you use skins, John, or like how do you how do you um, how do you maneuver?
2: Yeah, yeah. you affix what they call climbing skins. There's this uh, kind of a glue that's uh, sort of like a sticky, uh, sticky note glue that goes on and off and on and off and works multiple times. And so you have, you know, they're called skins because they used to be seal skins. So you have a, a fur, but now it's, of course, plastic that uh, slides in one direction and uh, is... Rigid, kind of in another direction, you climb up the mountain, zigzag up, boom, 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 and then uh, and then go up and and you get the solitude I mean, ice ski skier is a lot of avalanche conditions are so high or the snow is so deep that breaking trail is difficult, but um so we ski the the resort under those conditions. But the real wonder of skiing, and I've been skiing for not many years, but many decades uh, as as the primary activity that's what I do in the winter and The reason you don't get bored or the reason I don't get bored is it's not just about turning left, turning right, sliding down the mountain, it's about being up there with a close group of friends, making life and death decisions um Going up, reading avalanche conditions, and skiing big steep lines, or as steep as the day will allow, in the mountains, in in the wonderful nature. And, and the bottom line is being out in nature, in a in an intimate reciprocal way. Okay.
0: So, I was um, I was. Thinking of, I was putting together a little Twitter announcement um, about this conversation today. And I uh, had occasion to think about your conversation, uh, your podcast conversation with Barry Blanchard about the RuPaul face of, of Nanga Parat, Parat. And I uh, I went back and listened to a little snippet of it and in which you described it as hands down uh, the most extreme and forbidding, uh, conditions on the planet. Um, and I was, I'm interested in, I was interested in the list of things that you felt made, made the Rupaul face, uh, or a big wall in the Himalayas in general, uh, particularly, uh, uh menacing. Um, but I, I just think it'd be an interesting thing to what What are the conditions that make something uh, uh, really uh, uh, restrictive and, and dangerous? And what are the most dangerous uh, and forbidding conditions that you've been involved with of a, <laughs> of, a, very, of, a, of, a of a of of various sorts?
2: Well. The, the the Himalayas, whatever else you do in the Himalayas, you add the fact that you don't have enough oxygen, essentially, to survive long-term. So as soon as you get up to elevation, as soon as you get to altitude, whatever that is, above 20,000 feet, above 18,000 feet, wherever you pick your starting line, you're doing everything without enough oxygen. Uh, the nature has many things to throw at you. It has storms, it has avalanches, if you're on the ocean, it has waves and so on and so forth. You know, I I don't like to think of it so much as uh, this macho facing danger thing. There's a book by David Abram uh, called Becoming Animal that has, and I've been in touch with David a bunch and talked to him. It's it's a different level. It's too easy to talk about the danger and then toot your own horn and say, I do all these things, you know. But what's, what it is, is opening up your animal awareness to the point where you are hyper-aware. And it's a form of meditation. It's a walking meditation. And many many athletes have talked about this, but you open yourself up to this reciprocal communication to the earth the earth becomes alive so so let's talk about skiing an avalanche slope okay so the the snow falls over the course of months and it falls and then the wind comes up and then it gets warm and then it gets cold and more snow falls and so on and the snow has a layered a cake-like system. Each layer has a different density and consistency and tensile strength and so on and so forth. So when you're you're standing up on this ridge with a, the wind is blowing and your friends are up there and, and you can't talk very well because it's a windy day and, and these are people you know and trust. You trust your life with these people. They trust your life with you. And you look down and you're scared, you know? And you you make a decision, are we gonna ski this or not? Okay, who's gonna ski whose turn is it to ski first? You know, who's gonna be the guinea pig? And when you do that, you're you are trying to I use the word talk, but not in the sense that I talk to you or talk to somebody else, but you're trying to communicate with the snow Not the snow that you see, the snow that you see, yes, but all the layers of snow down into the snowpack for the last four months. At any point, there can be a failure. And to be alert to those failure modes, you have a lot of mechanical tricks, scientific tricks. One is, you know, you turn on the Internet in the morning and you read the avalanche report. But beyond that, You're feeling that under your skis. And this becomes an intensely personal experience of, like I say, communicating with the earth, losing your human sense and building up an animal sense of your relationship. You jump into this line, you see, and you say to your friends, you say, I'm going to cut it. I'm going to jump in and cut the slope, and what that means is I'm going to jump in really hard and hit the trigger point, which would start an avalanche. Hopefully, if an avalanche is going to start, I will start it and be able to ski up and out of it, and then you do that, and every tingly sense in you is alive. You pull that turn. It either goes or it doesn't go. If it goes, like, oh, shit. And off it goes, you know, the avalanche goes down below you. Or if it doesn't, then in mid turn, you decide, okay, this is safe enough to ski. And in mid turn, as you're moving, is a very kinetic thing. You, instead of pulling up and out of the slope, you drop into the fall line. Your skis are pointing downhill, you see, and now you're going. And now there's another option, you see. You might start what's called a slough, which is uh, a word for a very small surface avalanche. So maybe you've cut the slough, you know, and you've made your turn, you made your cut, you drop in, and there's slough running behind you, you know. And now you have to make another decision at a split second. Can I outrun this slough? Am I fast enough to outrun it? Or should I pull out? and let it go and then drop in behind it you see and you're making all these decisions at a at a split second split second ratio you know and i i mean i'm sure a basketball player or a football player you know a basketball player coming in the lane is making exactly as many decisions exactly as fast as the backcountry skier but the difference is, you win or lose the basketball game, or you get caught in an avalanche, or you don't get caught in an avalanche. So there's a different level. There's a different ante. Just, and to,
1: just to, yeah, that can I'm I'm I do not understand how your two hobbies are like going kayaking great great lengths on an ocean that is like I would imagine like for 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 days at a time is completely. Placid and calm, and how you can do that, and like the the reserves that require for like you to to do that type of um, like adventure, um, versus what you're describing, they seem like polar opposites. Can you tell me how it is that you do both of those things?
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, because I like both of them because <laughs> in, in both of those things you're dealing ultimately with a very powerful nature uh forces of nature and um so you're dealing uh, you know a wave in the ocean or a storm in the ocean is very similar to a storm in the mountains and the there's a thing about long distance ocean kayaking You can go backpacking for a week or 10 days, maybe two weeks at the most with what you carry in your pack, but you can go for a couple of months in a kayak. So in a kayak, you can extend your journey. And that's another element. to Outdoor adventure is the time element. We're caught up in this world of computers and, you know, in and out and urban things and um, your tire goes flat and how much does it cost for a new set of tires and all these things. But when you go out into nature, you're dealing with a different level of issues and a different communication, and that puts you in a different headspace. So the medium is unimportant. To me, whether you're a rock climber or an ocean kayaker or a skier, you're, you're entering this relationship with nature. But the thing about sea kayaking is you can escape from the urban world for much longer periods of time. And sea kayaking is inherently repetitive i almost use the word boring but not quite but it's definitely repetitive and you're going along on a day-to-day basis paddling and paddling it's like walking and walking but then in any in in any instant a storm can come up or a tide can change and then you and then you're playing a different game and so even though you're walking and walking or paddling and paddling your alertness has to maintain at a a higher level because um, something might happen that requires a higher level of performance. So, yeah, I I don't see them as very different. Um, As I get older and older, I really love the compression of the turn. I love the excitement of knowing that I can amp up the excitement level anytime I choose and in ocean kayaking, you, the, the ocean pretty much dictates what it is. But in backcountry skiing, if you want to turn the dial up at, on any day, you can. And that's kind of fun.
0: So I want to, you know, one of the things that I remember when I was a little kid, when you did your first uh, attempt to, to, to go around Cape Horn, in, uh, in a small boat, you came through our house in New York. And I remember I was probably seven or eight or something. And I asked you, why do you, why are you going around Cape Horn in a, in a kayak? And you said, cause somebody in a bar told me that if I did, <laughs> I could cro- uh, toast the queen with my feet on the table. And I remember thinking as I think any seven year old would under those circumstances, which which queen um and you responded uh, any queen you want um <laughs> and um one of the things about your voyages is that they are kind of uh they're they're not like climbing everest right which is like a cliche at this point so much so that like people get there's a traffic jam up there um you're you're interested in places that have not been explored much um and so you do these trips that you end up having to spend a lot of time explaining you know where is Ellesmere Island right uh what what does the uh where do the sort of islands off the coast of of uh you know the where do the Aleutians kind of crash into uh, the the uh, 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 the islands off the coast of 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 Russia, East Asia. Um, how do you find these? Like, like, what was the what was the impetus behind Ah? Uh, no one's ever gone around Ellesmere Island. Let's do that. Like, how do you choose?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question, Ben. Thank you. It um, There's no rhyme or reason to it, except in retrospect, it all seems like it flows like a well-orchestrated story. So I did a dog sled trip on the east coast of Baffin Island. Why did I pick the east coast of Baffin Island for doing a dog sled trip? Well, because it's the Canadian Arctic, and um, if you're going to take a dog sled trip you have to go where there's snow and if you're going to go with snow you may as well go to the arctic and the canadian arctic is a handy place i mean it's a bit random why i picked uh, baffin island so so we're we're going uh, we're we're going up baffin and, uh, and it's cold 40 below 50 below we're running dogs we're working along the coast and when we come into villages, the local uh, native hunters are always super friendly, and oh, stop in the village, come hunting with us, and you know, come into our igloo, and um, we'll have some uh, a mug up, have some tea, and then we'll go seal hunting, and it's all a jolly good fun. I, I think the important part of a trip is to leave room for those. Interactions where you don't have to be doing a speed trip all the time, and if somebody says, "Well, let's go hunting," or "Let's do this," or "Do that," that's certainly part of the journey, in my in my point of view. So anyway, we're going along, and we're we're on this journey. We're running these dogs, and and these guys say, "Oh, you're you're just like Kitlock," and I say, "Well, who's Kitlock?" And everybody laughs, and nobody tells me. And I get to the next village, and we're going hunting for shields or doing whatever, and somebody says, hey, you guys are just like Kitlock. And I go, who's Kitlock? And everybody laughs, and nobody ever tells me, you see. So I get home and I look up this guy and I find out he's a shaman, a murderer and a madman and a quintessential traveler. So now I've been labeled this character and I feel that, you know, without being the murderer part and certainly without being the shaman part, but, you know, I'll t- I'll take the madman component. And if anybody's going to, everybody's going to liken me to Kitlock I'll look up Kitlock's Greatest Journey and follow it. And so then I find out that he did this migration along the Ellesmere Island coast. Now, like you say, 99% of the people in the world will say, well, where's Ellesmere Island? Well, it's north of Baffin Island. Where's Baffin Island? It's in the northeast corner of the Canadian Arctic. Ellesmere at its closest distance is about 12 miles from Greenland. So it turns out that Kitlock made this amazing migration, the last known migration of indigenous people as the Western world was coming into the Arctic. And I get interested historically and spiritually and emotionally and personally with these people who traveled before me and want to follow their journey in their way. So then I start journeying on Ellesmere Island. So it's kind of a roundabout answer to your question, Ben. I don't sit down and come up with anything. It's just sort of like the trips come to me, Okay.
0: Uh, That's totally valid. Um, So listen, if you want to get in on the conversation, uh, uh, the Q&A is open um, uh, uh, subject to the uh, uh, restrictions I laid out earlier. Please feel free to flag your questions and we'll bring you into the conversation. Kate?
1: Yeah, so John, I'm loving kind of hearing about your relationship with nature and about your adventures and about kind of how the, like the ethos with which you live your life, I guess you would say that you gave us this book, but um, that actually is kind of, uh, I looked it up and I put it in the link to the group so people can go and see the book by David Abrams. Um,
0: yeah, should, I should do the same with John's books, actually. Let me do that now while you yeah. are talking.
1: And, okay. um, but, but John, I'm really curious, so, I'm currently, because of the coronavirus in Cape Cod, and um, I'm a great lover of history and adventure. And um, I used to read about the whaling ships um, that came in and out of the Cape and the ones that were lost and never came home. Um, I teach property law, so as I said before, and so like literally people constructed their homes um, around the lack of knowledge and certainty that was about the world of being a sailor, about the world of going to sea, like they would have these widow's walks and things like that. So they could like observe the sea constantly. Um, and kind of something that you said kind of strikes me, which is just like trying to like think about what like this kind of this older um, ancient sea travel and kind of this idea of like visiting all of these places. Um, you know, a modern sea kayak is certainly not something like uh, a whaling ship. Um, But it occurs to me that you are probably one of the most well um, positioned people, not just because of like your skills in adventuring, but because of your ability to handle the uncertainty of the day to day, given the types of adventures you go on. And so I'm just kind of really curious uh, whether you think about it in those terms. So do you think about like the, the way that people used to travel and live their lives had so much more built-in uncertainty to it? I think that we're kind of experiencing for the first time with this quarantine and it's making everyone deeply uncomfortable and anxious, but you kind of live your life that way.
2: Oh boy. <laughs> the death thing. Um, let's put something on the table, um, right now. Uh, I lost my wife in an avalanche, okay? Uh, Everybody that pushes the limit in outdoor adventure has friends who have died pushing the limits, okay? Um, Why am I not dead and some of my friends are dead? Many of my friends are dead. Well... I think luck has a big part of it, uh, a big uh, component. I've been lucky. Um, maybe I've been a little skillful as well. But uh, there's certainly a, a roll-the-dice component in what goes on. So... Why do you continue to do these things when you know that you could die? And I, that's an unanswerable question. Um, you, oh boy.
1: To be clear, I wasn't necessarily asking about like death, it was just general uncertainty of not knowing what was next in front of you. Not that like it would be that question and I'm really sorry about your wife. I, um, but my, I think I was mostly just kind of I really was trying to kind of get it like, uh, as you said, like this kind of constant vigilance as you're sitting in a kayak of like kind of being ready for whatever nature throws at you and having that uncertainty of not knowing what that next thing is gonna be um, I just think that's a there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty most people don't have in their daily lives. They have a, a routine. Um, and so, that's kind of the level of uncertainty I was kind of talking
2: about. Um, are you talking about uncertainty or vulnerability?
1: Oh, or, that's, a, or, that's a good question.
2: I mean, I, I tell this story uh, in some of my slideshows. We're on the, on the Ellesmere expedition with Eric Boomer. We're traveling north. We're in the high Arctic, and we're crossing the 80-degree north latitude line. And this is going to be a big deal. We're entering, I mean, it's a line on a white man's map. The native people don't know anything about 80, I mean they do now, but in the old days they didn't know what 80 degrees north latitude is, but anyway in our world we're crossing from the high arctic to the polar zone, and when we get into the polar zone there's all kinds of uncertainty uh, big uncertainties, like h- how much food do you carry, you see, so You carry, you figure, well, it's X number of miles to my next food cache, so I'm going to travel 15 miles a day. So divide that into the number of miles, and that's how many days. Add a few days for storm, and then I I carry 30 days' worth of food. But the problem when you're traveling on the ice is that you have smooth ice. You can travel 20 miles a day, and if you have rough ice, you can travel maybe 20 yards a day. So you've got 500 miles to go. How many days does it take to go 500 miles if maybe you'll be going 20 yards a day and maybe you'll be going 20 miles a day? Well, that's a difficult calculation, you see. So there's a great deal of uncertainty. So... We, we get to the 80-degree north latitude line, and we're going to have a big party. We're going to camp right there where the GPS says 80.000. We're going to put our camp down. We're going to break out an extra Snickers bar for a party. This is a big deal. So we're walking along, and Boomer's ahead of me, and all of a sudden he starts waving at me. Look behind you, look behind you. I turn around, there's a wolf following me, you see, right behind me like a dog. And I go, okay, I look at the wolf, and the wolf looks at me, you see, and the wolf isn't going to hurt me. I just know that. I, look, I mean, the wolves are close enough to dogs. You know, there's enough body language. This wolf, I don't know why this wolf is following me, but he's following me. So we we get to the 80-degree north latitude line, we pitch our tent, we go to sleep, we cook our dinner, and the wolf is right there. Right, right there. I go to sleep, and the wolf is curled up on the outside of the tent right next to me. I mean, I could just about punch the side of the tent and touch the wolf wake up in the morning, and the wolf is looking in the vestibule. I open up the little vestibule so we can let a little air out so we can cook our breakfast, and the wolf is staring right in the tent. What's going on here? Okay. Well, another factor that we're going to have to talk about is that I spent five expeditions over a course of six years in Siberia with this shaman woman, Mulanat, And I I look at this wolf and I say, what would Mulanat tell me? Why why is this wolf here? Wolves generally run away from people. Why has this wolf been right here within 20 yards of me for 15 hours? Well, Moulinot would tell me that it's the spirit wolf and it came to talk to me. So, okay. What's the wolf saying? I mean, I don't talk wolf. The wolf doesn't talk English. I'm not saying that the wolf, that suddenly I was able to talk wolf. This is my imaginative conversation with the wolf. That, The wolf is some kind of a spirit wolf. This wolf is some emissary from the natural world to tell me something. Is it the fairy godmother wolf, you know, that's going to wave its magic wand and say, hey, John Boomer, you're nice guys. You know, I'm going to grant you safe passage into the polar zone. No, 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 no. It's not the fairy godmother wolf. There is no fairy godmother wolf, you see. It's a real wolf. So what's it saying? It says, John Boomer, welcome. You're headed into the Arctic zone. You're guaranteed to get tired, hungry, strung out, frostbitten. You know, that. that's the guarantee. There's pain. There's going to be pain. You see? You might die out here. It's good to see you. And I'm absolutely certain that, I, I, I mean, the story about the wolf, take take it with a grain of salt. Take it as John Turk's, you know, crackpot interpretation of, of this real Arctic white wolf. But the fact is that nature is always saying this to you. Welcome. You're going to get tired. You're going to get hungry. You're going to get strung out. You're going to get frostbitten. You might die out here. Welcome. It's good to see you and acceptance of that vulnerability i think is perhaps the most important lesson that nature has to teach us okay
1: Uh, i love it's so sorry i'm like that was yeah i mean i i accept your spirit wolf i actually think that's an amazing story about a relationship with nature and i think that like I don't know, I've done a very limited number. I, like my adventures are like a teaspoon compared to yours in terms of like, I will go for a short period of time in various severe kind of conditions, nothing as long as you, but um, I will say that that, res- that like what you've described really resonates. Um, I think that like, I think that the way that nature communicates to you um, is definitely, definitely something that happens. Sorry, Ben, go ahead.
0: No, so- well, thank uh, you, Kate. So John Bordeaux writes, we ask John how he can live with so much uncertainty, he might just as well ask why we live so distant from the natural order of uncertainty. Um, and this comment that John wrote reminds me of, I can't remember if it's a passage in one of your books, uh, maybe in, uh, the book about Moulinat, or maybe in, in the the book about the Pacific kayak, uh, trip where you talk about the evolutionary value to the human species of people who live in these extreme remote places that they're on the one hand they're really marginal and the life is really marginal to the central action of the world on the other hand I don't think you use the example of a cataclysmic pandemic but you may use the example of nuclear war they're sort of like the people in the world most likely to survive like what we're going through now um and so i'm i'm interested in light of john's comments and wherever you wrote that of for your thoughts on like what why why incomplete modernity is important
2: <laughs> well f- f- first of all i mean okay we're we're here in the in the coronavirus epidemic issue i i, I think I, I mean there's two issues to survival and one is being in generally good health uh the, from everything i read the healthier you are the healthier your lungs are the um y- you know closer your weight is to the normal weight the healthier your metabolism is the better chance you have of surviving this uh tragedy this global tragedy but there's also the, the luck factor some people's immune system just seems to be balanced other better than others so now I'm rambling and I'm not sure I'm answering your question but I do think that uh in this tragedy uh, there has to there is I mean, we have to accept our fate because we have no choice and our fate is is very uncertain and it's coming at us. And and that makes it kind of scary. I think you have less control over coronavirus than you do over wandering around Ellesmere or skiing an avalanche slope because there's there's so much blind luck involved, which makes it uh, a bit terrifying. But um, I think what I said... I think that what you're referencing about uh, what I wrote in my book, uh, In the Wake of the Joman, where I was talking about migration – to North America and migration in general. So at some time, and the biology and the anthropology of this has changed the understanding of it since I've written the book, but people did migrate from Asia across the high Arctic into North America. That's just, of course, a given. So why do these adventuring adventurers have a, a higher chance of dying young and not having kids and not raising their kids And non-adventures. The more risk you take, the more chance you have of dying, the less chance you have of surviving. So why do adventurers, why are there adventurers genetically on the planet? And the answer is that in most times, in calm times, The adventurers have an evolutionary disadvantage because they run off and they jump off of cliffs and they get killed before they can have kids. But in catastrophic times, and I'm not talking about pandemic catastrophic times, but in other kinds of catastrophic times, it's the adventurers... Who will take the chance to migrate, and they will be the ones to survive? So over time, you have this up- and down balance where adventures get fewer and fewer in the population, and then whoops, bang! oh man, they really next generation, the adventurers get a higher proportion of the population because they did the migration. Was that the answer to your question or was I answering a different question? Uh,
0: well, I, I was remembering something uh, that I'd read a long time ago. And so I'm sure you're remembering the point more accurately than I am. But I, I, I also extrapolate from it. If you imagine, imagine the coronavirus killed at the rate of Ebola with the transmissibility of, of the coronavirus. So it's genuinely like a Black Death, you know, kind of, you know, assault on the species. Like the native hunters that you were talking about in Baffin Island are probably the people most likely to, you know, come through relatively unscathed, right?
2: yeah and there's a corollary oh, i understand where where you're going with this and there's a corollary to that that um i have no firm evidence for this but um let's talk about it anyway the question is why do people go move from a temperate environment into the arctic where life is so much more difficult i've just been reading a book about mosquitoes and mosquito death and How many people have died of malaria? And you think of warm environments as being friendly, uh, safe environments, comfortable. But um, if you go north, there's a whole lot less disease. You have cold, but this is something that you can deal with on a physical level. You can't deal with malaria by being uh, strong and you know, brave, clean, and reverent and everything. So, yeah, I do think that over the history of the planet, migration into the north could easily have been an escape from disease, and and it becomes very understandable at that level.
0: So somebody, an anonymous attendee, writes in uh, uh, saying he or she is a former inhabitant of Baffin, Uh, And says, the communities on Baffin are probably more connected through modern travel patterns than I realize this is addressed to me. The communities have pre-existing respiratory vulnerabilities, TB and more, rampant domestic overcrowding and nearly non-existent healthcare capacity. Coronavirus is far more threatening than nuclear war. Do you have thoughts on that, John?
2: Yeah, that that, that actually... Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. Uh, Anonymous. I think that's a good point because people on Baffin do travel around by aircraft a lot and um, the medical attention is going to be not as good. Uh, and while Baffin is... You know, total square area by total number of people has a very uh, sparse, dilute population. Those people are, are definitely concentrated into villages and small cities where community exposure would be as great as anywhere.
1: Can I ask you a question, John? And I don't want to like put you on the spot to like speak for like all put of. Put me it.
2: on the spot.
1: <laughs> um, so when I go to when I go to Montana, the farm um, that I go to is on a reservation, and um, I'm really curious if there's any kind of difference that you're noticing or hearing about because we don't hear these types of things. I don't get the Missoula Sun Times or like whatever it is. Um, and anymore and so uh i'm but i'm really curious to hear like is there a difference in native populations in terms of reservation communities and how they're dealing with this have you heard anything from being kind of proximate to it i mean in the northeast we're just simply not proximate to those types of communities
2: boy uh good question kate i don't really i'm not close enough to the uh Reservation populations to be able to answer that in any kind of a intelligent way. So I will skip that. I will assume that, um, yeah, I I, I can't imagine. I don't know if there's a difference between the reservation communities and the non-reservation communities in western Montana. I'll have to pass on that one.
0: Okay. Thanks. So uh, we're going to wrap up pretty soon. So if you, uh, if people have any additional questions, um, uh, uh, this is a sort of your last chance to put them in. Um, I, uh, you're working on a new book. I hear from my email, John. Tell us about the new book.
2: It's called Lions' Myth. Wilderness is the new title that I've just worked on. And thank you for this question, Ben. And it's it's about the mythologies, how mythology became the unifying factor in um, humanity, gave us our strength and our power, our cooperative cohesion to make us survive back in the Paleolithic times, and how... Our propensity to believe in myth is our current worst problem. It leads us to follow leaders like Trump who tell myth, and why we why we're genetically geared to fall for myth. Where it can how it can take us in? in ways that are detrimental to the human welfare. And you know, how we can recognize these problems and not be susceptible to following myths that will become destructive.
0: So I have shared links to all of your other books, uh, or at least the, the non textbook books uh, on the, on the chat. Uh, and I will add them to the uh, info in this, uh, on the YouTube uh, screen as well. Um, but uh, if you wanna, before you uh, uh, go, if you wanna say a couple words about one or more of those books, uh, you mentioned The Raven's Gift, the book about uh, your interactions with the shamaness uh, 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 um, uh, in uh, off of Kamchatka, um, but uh, you know, give us an overview of the of the John Turk uh, book list.
2: Okay, thanks, Ben. Thank you. Well, my first two books were basically adventuring books, uh, Cold Oceans and in the Wake of the Joman in the Wake of the Joman was my two year, journey uh, by kayak across the Pacific from Japan to Alaska following the migration of our Paleolithic ancestors. And on that trip, I, my Russian partner Misha and I stopped in this small village, the Venka, and we met this shaman, 96-year-old shaman. She was born during the reign of Tsar Nicholas II, lived through the Russian Revolution, the entire rise and fall of the Soviet Union, and on into Perestroika, and so on and so forth. And I ended up spending five years off and on, not continuous, in this small village. And I was hurt. I was injured. I was healed by Kukha the Raven. I ate the magic mushroom and traveled to the other world to try to thank Kucha the Raven. I failed in that journey. I was unable to complete the journey to the other world. I got scared, you see. And then Oleg the hunter told me I had to take this journey. I had to take my journey. He told me, very frankly, you're a lousy traveler in the other spirit world. You have to take your journey on the real world. So this book is about these five years of transformation for me and it really was totally transformative in looking at our world and looking at our problems through the eyes of nature and through our relationship to nature and finding the spirit world in in nature in the real world and if I were going to recommend uh, One book to somebody, anybody, I would start with The Raven's Gift. And then I go on to Crocodiles and Ice and on to this book, which, as I say, I think is important, so important in this age. Because you you talk about the the Trump phenomena, and you, Ben, have written an excellent book, um, you and Susan, about the Trump phenomena and, and looking at it from a political and historical way. I'm looking at it. uh, There's no conflict here, none whatsoever. Just a different voice, looking at it from um, deep down in. Tolstoy asked in *War and Peace*. He said, "I understand why one madman, Napoleon, would want to attack Russia, but why did a million people feel that they had to follow him?" And. I'm asking the same question. I understand why one madman would want to do this. I understand why advertising executives want us to destroy the planet so that they can make money because we buy a lot of stuff. But why, do we, why are we all following that? Uh, the chapter I'm writing now is called To Flush a Toilet. And I'm in Kenya and we're doing this whole thing because all these uh, student eco-tourists need to flush their toilets in the middle of a drought, a three-year drought, and the cattle are dying because there's not enough water. And we have to come up with enough water so that these tourists can shit in the water, you see. I'm like, wow, wow, how do we fall for all that? (laughs) I got revved up there, Ben.
1: No, I actually, hold on. I'm going to share this meme. There's this amazing meme I'm going to kind of, I'll share it really with the audience really briefly. Um, John, you're not going to be able to see it, but it's a meme of a kid in an African village. There is a kid in an African village and he's standing and kind of looking skeptically at this adult and he's saying, so you're telling me that you're telling me you flush your toilet with perfectly clean drinking water. (laughs) Right. And and that is like, I have like the the perspective that that one picture and that one meme gives is like just fantastic.
2: Well, thank you, Kate. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're on the right track about that. When you think about it, it's beyond comprehension, you know. (laughs) It's complete. Um it's completely,
1: it's just completely nuts. It's honestly just completely nuts. So,
2: so that's what my new book is about: things that are completely nuts.
1: <laughs> I'll have to send you this meme so that you can like that you can like reference it. I think you'd like it. Um, it's just yeah. Um, I was trying to pull it up, but yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, John. Thank you for sharing your stories. I kind of it was. We've had a lot of political people and a lot of academics on, and like. Uh, And it's been really focused on the coronavirus and it was actually really lovely to kind of hear about your adventures and your take on life. I think I feel refreshed a little bit by this conversation, Ben. Like, I mean, you're a little biased, but like I would have been looking forward to this all day. And I (laughs) this was the best part of my day.
2: Wow, Kate, that's so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, John, it's lovely to hear your voice and uh, let's uh, do it again soon. John, okay. let me buy,
1: I'll buy you a beer, uh, I'll buy you a beer, or I will buy you a tea at Butterfly Herbs the next time we're both in Missoula.
2: <laughs> Wonderful.
1: Good.
0: All right, uh, that does it for today. Um, and uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Kate, what's on tap tomorrow? We have we have Jack Balkin coming, right? We have Jack Balkin is gonna come on. Yeah, law professor
1: Jack Balkin. Um, He is an expert in many things, but he is going to specifically talk to us um, about his take on what all of the coronavirus means for higher education and law schools. Um, And I'm hoping to have, I'm trying to figure out who the other guest is going to be to balance Jack out, whether it's going to be another person at Yale Law School, another professor that I know, or whether it's going to be, and I kind of wanted to run this by you, Ben, and see what you thought. whether it would be someone like that, or whether it would be someone from a from a public university that teaches science and teaches like undergraduates, um, as a balance to kind of like balance out kind of the experience of Jack teaching at the most elite law school and like a state state university, but I didn't know if that was like too. Yeah,
0: no, I think that that's I, I like the idea of of that diversity. Frankly, I I, um, I suspect the reality of the future of higher education is a bit different at the Yale Law School than it is yeah. in the science department at a state university.
1: Oh yeah, that's exactly how, that's how I felt too. And so I kind of, I mean, I'm actually just was, I just, in our Wikipedia mode of what this this is, like I just was really interested in like kind of finding out what the difference is. So I thought I'd ask them both on.
0: Excellent. Okay. Uh, so we will see you all then. Uh, that's tomorrow at 5. Eastern time. And until then, uh, you know, if you can't have fun, you can have us in lieu of fun. Uh, (laughs) See you tomorrow. Bye, John.
1: John. Thank you so much for coming on Uh,
0: Great talking to you. Thanks for doing it.
2: Well, thank you, Kate. Thank you, Ben. Take care.
0: Bye.